When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition is coming from the World Economic Forum in Davos. Despite the spring weather here, the main topics of discussion are very bleak. On the economic front, people are worried by the resurgence of inflation. The war in Ukraine often dominates conversation. And that conflict has increased concerns about a global food shortage and the threat of famines around the world. One of the most compelling speakers I've come across in Davos is David Beasley, the Executive Director of the United Nations World Food Programme. And he's my guest on this week's podcast. So, with millions of people threatened with starvation, what must the world do? Even before the outbreak of war in Ukraine, the global food situation was increasingly dangerous. One major factor are droughts in Africa, South Asia, and the United States that are crippling food production. Well, some farmers are issuing a warning of a perfect storm of rising prices, supply chain issues, poor planting weather that could lead to a shortage of corn by the end of this summer. Reporters in East Africa have found many communities already threatened by famine. Ikiru says he doesn't know his age, but he does know he's starving. Famine is stalking the sun-blasted plains of Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia. (laughs) And according to aid groups, up to 20 million people like Ikiru don't know if they'll eat today or tomorrow. Now, the war in Ukraine is threatening to further drastically restrict the global food supply by preventing grain from the breadbasket of Europe from reaching world markets. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, accuses Russia of stealing his country's grain. These new satellite images show what appear to be the ramping up of theft by Russia of Ukrainian grain being poured into the open hold of a Russian ship. This was in the Crimean port of Sevastopol on May 19th. Then, two days later, a second ship docks and it too is filled. Now, both Russian ships are sailing away. This weekend, President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of fueling a food crisis and of gradually stealing Ukraine's food supplies and trying to sell them. Meanwhile, global attention is increasingly focused on the closure of the Ukrainian port of Odessa, from which the country usually exports the vast majority of its grain. This is an increasingly urgent problem. David Beasley was in Davos to appeal to some of the world's richest and most powerful people to act quickly to deal with the world's food emergency. As he explained to me, the removal of Ukrainian and Russian grain from world markets threatens a catastrophic rise in world hunger. When you take a nation that grows enough food for 400 million people and you pull it off the market, on top of already a food crisis is creating truly a perfect storm within a perfect storm, a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe, 
And it literally could lead to hell on earth because what we're going to be facing in the next 10 to 12 months is massive food pricing problems, hunger, starvation, and then possibly and probably in 2023, a food availability problem. So it is a very, very serious situation. And the situation in Ukraine, I mean, the, the grain is there, it's getting it out. And I think you were saying opening the port of Odessa is absolutely crucial. It has to be done, what, in the next few weeks? Well, here's what's hard to understand. Before the Ukraine war, we were facing a food crisis around the world because of two years of COVID, economic ripple effect, fuel prices, commodity prices, shipping costs. Now you had Ethiopian war, Afghanistan, on top of other wars and climate shocks. So we had already seen the number of people marching to starvation jump from 80 million to 135 million right before COVID. When you say marching to starvation, you mean literally they could die of hunger? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that number went from 135 pre-COVID to 276 million people. These are people that are struggling to find food. And in that 276, 49 million people are knocking on FAMA's door as we sit here right now in 43 countries. That's all before Ukraine. So Ukraine war comes along, knocking out the breadbasket of the world. You got Russia and Ukraine that grows enough commodities to providing 30% of the world's supply of wheat, 20% of the world's supply of maize, 76 or some odd percent of sunflower oil. Let me keep going on. Then you got the fertilizer problem that's being now compounded from Belarus and Russia. What do you think happens when you don't have fertilizer? What cuts your yield down in half? On top of that, we've got some of the worst droughts in the United States, in the Horn of Africa, and I can keep going on and on. So now, with that port being shut down, the silos that would normally be emptying now to ship food around the world, we buy 50% of our grain from Ukraine. We feed 128, 130 million people on any given day, week, or month. So it hits us. But there are over 26 countries that depend on 50% or more of their grain, like Egypt, Senegal, uh, Lebanon, I could go on and on. They depend on 50% from Ukraine or Russia. Uh, but Ukraine or Russia. So when you add all these factors together, we're now looking at an additional 50 million people on top of the 273 million people. And so these ports have got to open and they got to open now. Why? Because the silos are full. Why are the silos full? Because the port's not operational. Why is the port not operational? Because of military blockade. The problem is the harvest for Ukraine grain is in July and August. And we've got to empty the silos to be able to get the harvest out of the fields into the silos so we can then send it to the ports to ship around the world. And so if the silos are full, then that means the grain that feeds 400 million people is going to have to be plowed up right in the field. It's a big problem. And you can't truck enough out compared to the shipping of the infrastructure that's in place now. How much could be done by truck? I mean, if support didn't... Uh... We're working on that left and right, up and down, and uh, we're looking probably a million metric tons per month versus the norm of five or more. Uh, it's only 20%. Yeah. yeah, but it will help. It will help. But the cost significantly increases. And if you increase cost of a commodity too much, well, then nobody's going to buy it because there might be available 
other commodities in the market. Now, that would be a nice problem to have, so to speak. But mm-hmm. right now, we're facing pricing and availability issues over the next two years. Basically. I know it's not strictly your department, but you must be following closely. I mean, what is the prospect of the port of Odessa opening? I guess you need Russia to play ball, you need Ukraine to play ball, even in Turkey to play ball because of the going out through the Black Sea. Well, everybody has to play ball on this issue. Failure to open up the port, in my opinion, is a declaration of war on global food security. Right now, we are already taking food from the hungry children to feed the starving children because we don't have enough money and enough food. And so this is truly a catastrophe. And so the port has got to be open. And that's been my message very clearly. Think about Ukraine's economy. Over 40% of their GDP comes from the ports. So if you shut that down, it's not going to impact just Ukraine. It's going to impact the entire world. The entire world. The market volatility that we are already seeing, putting food pricing out of reach. At the World Food Program, already, because of food pricing increasing, fuel pricing increasing, shipping costs increasing, the impact on our expense is already $71 million more per month, per month. So just do the math. That's about $850 million that we will have an additional cost just to reach the people we've been reaching, not even considering the fact that the number of people we need to reach is double. And so who's going to pay the price for that? The poorest of the poor. They can't afford it. We can't reach them. We are already cutting Beneficiaries, like in Yemen alone, for example, 8 million beneficiaries were cut to 50% rations. In Chad, Niger. When did that happen? Over the last few months. Simply because your budget won't cover what's needed. The increase of the demand for food, of the increase in the food insecurity of the number of people that are now starving. I've got women telling me, Mr. Beasley, This is like, for example, in Syria or in Afghanistan. I had to choose between freezing my child to death or starving my child to death. I didn't have the money to buy cooking fuel and heating fuel. Or my husband didn't want to join ISIS in Mali or Niger, but we hadn't fed our child in two weeks. What were we supposed to do? And if they can't migrate, they go adapt in any way they can. So if we don't reach the people we're talking about, you will have famine, you will have mass migration, and you will have destabilization of nations. Now, let me add this factor. In 2007, 2008, 2009, when you had Arab Spring. That was the run-up to the Arab Spring. That's right. Exactly. So there were over 48 countries that had riots, protests, political unrest. The economic conditions and factors today are worse than then. Look at already the destabilizing dynamics you're seeing in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Indonesia, Peru. Look what happened in Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad. That's a sign of things to come. Now, you know, the people here are often referred to as the global elite. So if anyone can mobilize action, it should be the combination of politicians, businessmen, and so on. How receptive are they to your message? I mean, presumably they listen. Do you think they'll act? There's $430 trillion worth of wealth on planet Earth today. And the men and women at Davos are the wealthiest of the wealthy. 
if they're not going to do it out of the goodness of their heart, then they better do it out of the national security interests because we can't afford for the world to destabilize any worse than it already is. 80% of our operations right now are in war zones and areas of conflict. And we're the world's largest humanitarian operation. For every 1% increase in hunger, there's a 2% increase in migration. You're going to pay for it one way or the other. I mean, Germany just did a simple study of a million refugees that ended up in Berlin or Germany from Syria cost the German taxpayers $125 billion at a cost of about over $71 per day. If I had the money to reach that Syrian inside Syria, that would cost me 50 cents. And guess what? People don't want to migrate. They don't want to leave home. When you feed 130 million people, you, you, you talk to them all the time and you survey them. People don't want to leave home. But if they don't have food or any degree of security, they would do what any mom and dad would do for their family. Flee, find it wherever it is. And the cost is always 100 to 1,000 times more. And then if you get destabilization where there's war and conflict, well, it's, it's thousands upon thousands of times more. And so we've got solutions, short-term solutions. We need, yes, in this time of crisis, I normally tell the wealthiest of the wealthy, I don't need your charity. I need your engagement. But right now, because of this perfect storm, you know, you, the average net worth increase per day during COVID was $5.2 billion. I just need one or two days worth of your net worth increase to create stability in nations around the world so we don't have famine, we don't have destabilization, we don't have mass migration. Is that too much to ask? I don't think so at all. I mean, have a heart. It's time to realize how bad people are suffering out there. Step up a call to action to the people on planet Earth who need the wealthy of the wealthy right now. Now, we get through this crisis, I need these big corporations and wealthy, incredibly brilliant people to let's solve the hunger problem because I want to put the World Food Program out of business. We're no longer needed. I mean, when you look at the fact that 200 years ago, 95% of the people on planet Earth were in extreme poverty, a population of 1.1 billion and now 7.7 .7 billion. We got less than 10%. We don't need to tear down the 90% that reached the 10. Let's now focus on that 10% in the wars and bring hope to people who aren't experienced in this better way of life. And I do believe with the ingenuity, the technology, and the artificial intelligence, and the brilliance of the men and women walking around Davos, my God, we can put people on Mars, and what we do with smartphones, and put rockets in space now with people, you know, tourism bases. Well, my goodness, what's more important than keeping someone from starving to death? Indeed. I mean, but breaking it down into the short term and the long term. So we talked about short term things. One is the port of Odessa. Yeah. The other sounds like you just need in the short term more money, more budget to buy. And is there anything else that you would say, you know, to avert this immediate risk of famine that needs to be done? Yeah, there are several things. But number one, get the port of Odessa open because that will help diminish market volatility. Number two, we got to get the fertilizers out. We've got to do everything we can there. We've got to make certain that, that we don't have trade wars and export bans and things like that. And then get us the money we need. We averted famine and destabilization and mass migration in 2020 and 21 because the world leaders stepped up and we had the sufficient funds to reach the people that needed to be reached. 
because we thought COVID would be behind us by 2022. And it recycled again, compounding a fragile earth where debt escalated uh, because of safety net programs in poor countries, especially $27 trillion worth of economic stimulus packages around the world. The world doesn't have any reserve money down to throw it a problem. So we've got to fix this thing. And we can't afford to ignore it. That's why the port's critical right now. The world's very, very fragile. People are struggling in these poor countries, unlike any time period we've seen before. And you said 43 countries. So it's obviously, it's, it's, it's not one or two, as we've said in the past. Yeah. It was Ethiopia in the 80s. It, it's widespread. But if you had to point to particular regions that really need help right now? Well, Yemen's one of them. The Sahel, I mean, Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad, and you can get down to CAR and DRC and Sudan, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia. Then we get into, let's say, Central America, where you like uh, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. The number of people now talking about migrating to the United States border from just Central America compared to one year ago is now 10 times. 10 times. It isn't complicated. You can pay for it one way or the other. And we've got solutions. Number one right now is money. And compared to $430 trillion worth of wealth on Earth today, when billionaires are making over five, six billion dollars a day, come on. But some policies seem to be moving in the wrong direction because you're seeing more and more countries putting export bans on food. How big a problem is that? Export ban on food can create havoc in the market. We ask countries not to do that. We had that in COVID particularly. Uh, there were a lot of restrictions and movement, and we were on the phone every day with leaders around the world. Don't do that. Let me. I know your intentions were good, but let me explain what's going to happen. And many of them back down. And so we're asking leaders and countries not to put these restrictions on. We need as much transparency as we can in the private sector and the government sector because all these things matter right now because when you look at the comprehensive picture and put it all together, you begin to realize, wow, there's not going to be one simple solution. It's a complex number of initiatives that have got to be all brought together to stabilize over the next couple of years. And over the longer term, I mean, it does look like climate change is making things. Oh, yeah, and climate change. So last year alone, who would have ever believed that we had more internally displaced people from climate change than we did from conflict? 30 million people from climate change versus 10 million, literally three to four times. That's unprecedented. And you can debate what's causing the climate to change. I'll leave that to the experts, but I can tell you, World Food Program, we feed 128, 30 million people any given week, day, and month. We see it out there. The climate is clearly changing. And people out in the poorest of the poor areas, they have to adapt or they die. And so we are developing adaptation programs. How do we harvest a little bit of water that we can? How do we green up the communities so that they can survive while the world works on mitigation issues? You know, what's going to happen to any reasonable family of any degree of income in the West? They can watch one less Netflix movie, whereas the poorest of the poor we're talking about, who's struggling because of climate and economic deterioration and COVID and now food crisis, they're and, living hand to mouth. And right now you have uh, temperatures of 49, 50 degrees in South Asia. Asia. Seeing unprecedented temperatures, and that is dynamically impacting harvest nations, inputs, outputs. And I, I had somebody one day said, yeah, but I looked at the country you were talking about, and it was the same rainfall last year that it was 10 years ago. I said, you know what? That country you're talking about, 
That's right. But let me tell you what happened in the spring and the fall. They had vast drought in the spring and massive floods in the fall. It averaged out the same for the year. But when you had the planting season, you had a drought. When you had the harvest season, you had an absolute flood. So you got to look at all 12 months because it's shifting out there. Places before they weren't getting rain or getting rain. Places before they got rain or not getting rain. And you get in the Sahel where they only have inches of rain per year. And wow, how do you survive in conditions like that? And if we don't give them the tools they need to survive, well, they go migrate by necessity. Is the message getting home in the West? I mean, you know, in your own country, the United States, you've got a very serious drought now. Do you think people who were skeptical are beginning to understand? They are. And I think the key is the media getting the word out. That was hard on the media the last four or five years. I said, look, we've got this food crisis coming. And I don't, when I turn on the TV, all I see is Trump, 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 or Brexit, 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 or this or that. And I'm like, I don't care how you feel about those issues, but we got people dying all over the world because of food insecurity. And I think because of the Ukrainian crisis, it's a wake-up call to the rest of the world because if we're struggling to feed 7.7 billion people today, what do you think is going to happen when we have 10, 11, 12 billion people. And so it's one thing when the people in Chicago don't have enough to eat or the people in London or the people in Berlin. Imagine. And so the world needs to wake up and realize we're all created equal. We're all brothers and sisters. And when one suffers in one part of the world, you go pay for it. Let's do what we need to do. You strike me as somebody who's basically a kind of optimistic person, but facing a very, very grim situation. So to try and end on a note of optimism, you know, in five years' time, if things have begun to go right, what would have happened? Oh, my gosh. You know, one of the hardest questions I get from friends is, how do you stay optimistic? And you're one of those optimistic persons I know. But how do you stay optimistic when you're seeing all the suffering and death and trauma and crisis? And I say, well... When I'm out there in the field, whether it's a child in war-torn Syria or in the deserts of Chad, when I see that little girl, that little boy come from behind the rubble and there's that life, that spirit of life in their eyes, it just inspires you to not give up on that child. And I do believe every human being is created in the image of God and every human being is equal to me. And every human being is special to me. And so I'm not going to give up on those children. And here's the fear right now. If we're taking food from the hungry children to give to the starving children, the stunting, the wasting that's going to take place. So if we can do what we need to do in the next two years, get through this crisis, I do believe if we can end the wars, I really do, we could end global hunger by 2030. And I know that you're a great believer in the entrepreneurialism of Africa, for example. All you got to do is meet an African woman <laughs> out in the field. I have seen it firsthand. The spirit of entrepreneurialism in African women is so inspiring. And they don't want handouts. They will tell you, Mr. Vizzi, we want the tools so that we can feed ourselves, sell into the market, and enhance and increase our opportunities for our families and our villages. And when we give them those tools versus the old-fashioned way of just handing out food, that does not solve long-term food insecurity. That doesn't solve poverty. Charity is good, but it's not the answer. You've got to have 
private entrepreneurial spirit. You got to empower people. And that's what in the World Food Program we're trying to do. I want to put us out of business. And I can give you story after story after story where women have said, Mr. Beasley, before you were feeding our village and we depended on you 100%. Now you've given us the tools. We put down a water well, irrigation system in our village. We're not only feeding our village now, our families in our village, we're selling it to the marketplace and we've got leftover money. We're buying clothes. We're buying medicines. And I had this one woman say, I just paid for my son's wedding. And she said it with such pride. You're sitting there just, just like, oh my God, this is what it's all about. Mm-hmm. How do we create that hope and opportunity for every human being on the planet? It's doable. It is doable. That was David Beasley of the World Food Programme, ending this week's edition of the Rackman Review. There are plenty of interesting people in the corridors here in Davos who I'm busy talking to and recording some of them. So please join me again next week.